Hi, we're Eleanor and Carrie. We're the hosts of the Good Robot Podcast, and join us as we ask the experts: What is good technology? Is it even possible? And what does feminism have to bring to this conversation? If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website, where we've got a full transcript of the episode and a specially curated reading list with work by or picked by our experts. But until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Today, we're talking with Priya Goswami, who's an anti-FGC activist, an award-winning filmmaker, and CEO and founder of the AI-driven app Mumkin. We discuss feminist data practices and app design, including designing and building apps that do good, why an app's users are actually participants, and why you can't compromise on the participants' privacy and safety. Priya explains what it means to design an app as an activist, why feminism should be normalized, and the problem with running activist campaigns on social media. We hope you enjoy the show. Warning, this episode contains discussion of female genital cutting, or FGC. So Priya, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, So just to kick us off, who are you, what do you do, and what brings you to this topic of feminism, gender, and technology? Very happy to be here. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me. I'm Priya Goswami. I'm a filmmaker, communication designer from India, now based in Hong Kong. What brings us here? Well, let's see. I'm a filmmaker who made an artificial intelligence-driven app. A very exciting journey. I can't wait to share with you all. And uh, yeah. Our podcast is called The Good Robot. And so we ask all our guests what they think good technology means and what it looks like to them. To say that your app is an example of good technology would be an understatement. It's truly amazing technology that is improving the quality of people's lives and offering this really unique, informative space of solidarity. So when you were building the app, what did you think of as good technology? Thank you for that question and also the amazing name Good Robot. I'm happy to be a good robot or a part of it. So... When we started creating the app, it was like a clean slate for me personally, because I come from a communication background. I went to a design school. So we were kind of aware of uh, user-centered design practices and, uh, you know, the impact of design on just about everything. So um, be it a cup, toothbrush, or even cars, my you know design school professors would often talk about uh, design can make an impact on just about everything including um, you know a survey form and uh, all of that learning sort of rushed back when um, we started to create this app I started to question myself what would I want to see in the kind of technology we see out there and how can we do it differently so uh, a little bit about me uh, I'm also an activist. I have a background of uh, working on female genital cutting in Asian communities for the past 10 years. And um, oftentimes, as a visual communicator, as a filmmaker, I would get frustrated with the use of uh, blood, blade, really kind of graphic imagery. Uh, Think of like black and red and, you know, those types of colors to although emphasize the trauma of the practice, but, you know, really not thinking about how would a survivor receive that kind of imagery, what kind of impact would someone who may have undergone the practice of female genital cutting would have when they see such a visual. So um, 
like I said, it was a clean slate. I wanted to um, relook at practices uh, in terms of UI UX, but also in terms of just about how can an app feel more human? How can technology feel more human by the words that it chooses to throw at the user? And at some point, I'd also like to debate on your platform, why are we calling our users users? Why not participants? So, well, yeah, so just about questioning everything, that's how we began, starting from the UI, UX, uh, the way it is created, the language that is used, and also the color-toning visuals, especially to communicate heavy, sensitive subjects um, on gender-based violence. That's so fascinating. And thank you so much for sharing, you know, the journey behind this app and the design choices that you made, the sort of problems that you're trying to address uh, when it comes to the other design choices made in this field. And so I'd love to hear more about your choice to make an app in the first place. So what opportunities did you think that the app offered you for addressing these forms of gender-based violence and harm? That's a great question. Uh, why an app in the first place? Why not an Instagram page, right? Why not a Facebook page? And we already did that. I'm very fortunate to be a co-founder of an international nonprofit with four other women. And we do have a very successful uh, storytelling platform inviting stories from people from the community, survivors, men, women, to share their own stories and, you know, basically place the narrative, the power of sharing their stories in people's own hand, you know, bringing up um, ground up change. So why an app? Why not a social media page? So it's a very interesting journey for me. Uh, for me personally, the movement started with a documentary called A Pinch of Skin. Uh, I was very young when I made it. I was still in college and uh, my professors, I remember, told me that this film cannot get made because um, you're a documentary filmmaker. You will not get visuals if no one is willing to come on record and, you know, share their name on in a piece of in an article. Forget, um, you know, asking anyone for getting a video bite or an audio bite. I found that challenge also a kind of a design challenge and particularly interesting. And this is way back in 2011 when no one from the community uh, was willing to speak about the subject openly, um, any names, anything at all leaked out could have had very real consequences on the people, people's lives. So when I made A Pinch of Skin, it was shot entirely with anonymous narratives, uh, with hands, feet, abstract visuals, fluttering of curtains, you name it, full of abstractions. From there, in 2015, when we co-founded an international nonprofit, it was such a significant leap where men and women from the community were willing to post their selfies. Now, we uh, think of selfies as these really, I mean, what is a selfie, right? Such a flippant thing, for lack of a better word. I cannot tell you how powerful selfies felt at the moment when we were like just showcasing somebody was taking a selfie of, you know, holding a placard saying, I'm from the community. I don't believe in the practice. There it was, you know, people coming out, using their phone cameras. I get goosebumps when I say this. And, you know, just really putting their voice out there, their voice of, you know, dissenting voices out there. But things started to shift. We often forget that uh, you are anyone is, you know, when we put our voices out there on social media, the social media pages are monitored by other people, people who are watching you, maybe. And social media pages are watched by, you know, the, the social media pages themselves. So say you put out your selfie on Facebook or Instagram, Facebook or Instagram is watching you, people are watching you and your behavior on Facebook or Instagram. 
So that kind of really hit home hard that a lot of people from the community started to feel like they can't comment or even like or, you know, like heart a picture because they can't be, you know, overtly showing their support to the movement, but they would write to us. And so although there's a lot of power, even in anonymous narratives, we started to think, how can we give power to the people and, you know, at the same time, protect their privacy. So that was, I would say, kind of the idea behind what can an app do that a social media page can't. And then, you know, something fantastic happened. Uh, My co-founder, Arifa, her sister said, oh, you know, these days things are really um, advancing. Why not use AI? And uh, Arifa said, okay, I am not a technology person. Let's maybe, you know, put something out there with AI. We got through and uh, to let you on to a secret, Arifa gave me a panic call. We've got the grant. It's an AI-driven app. And uh, we want you on board. And I was like, yes, okay, wow, we'll do this. And uh, I think that's when the penny sort of dropped, how important it is to have, uh, rather create a private space for the users where they can, what does it mean to have privacy of a palm-top device? What could that afford to our users what it already hasn't like a social media channel hasn't and so on and so forth so the app really came from the medium of you know it somebody using it in their bathrooms for instance like you can really use an app in your bathroom and no one would know so pretty much from the medium itself Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And it's so fascinating to hear about the kind of long history of activism that then informed the kind of product that you wanted to make to allow people to have these really difficult conversations. I'm really interested in the question of privacy and this private public kind of interface or relationship that you've outlined. So what kinds of design decisions did you have to make in order to ensure that your app didn't risk putting its users or rather participants, as you've you know quite rightly identified, at harm, or making sure that your app didn't produce unexpected or unintended negative outcomes? I think this is where I had the most fun as a designer. It was such a challenging, just such a challenging project on so many levels. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to scratch the surface of what is a communication designer doing with technology. That is a whole other conversation. Maybe we can touch upon that later. But um, how to approach technology now from the perspective of an activist who deeply understands the pulse of the community, deeply understands the ramifications it could have on actual people's lives, who you know by, you know, their first names, you know, their entire families, So I would start by talking about, yes, there is a very, there is a private public discourse happening here. When we decided that we will have this app, the first first challenge at hand was how do we invite the users? Like, how should they be logging into the app? And this debate went on for six months. We had a pre-pilot and then we uh, improvised on our pre-pilot. And there were no straight answers, right? On the one hand, we wanted our users to be able to log into Mumkin entirely anonymously. Uh, We didn't want to have their email addresses, phone numbers, nothing. On the other hand, we were acutely aware of intimate partner surveillance, 
we were acutely aware of how phones are actually devices that can be monitored by intimate partners, extended family members, and we did not want anyone else to have access to the app, right? No one should be able to know what the conversations in the app looks like. So uh, we took the difficult decision of, you know, going with a username and password. And at that step, we were appalled just by the very many choices we had, which were so implicit, right? So the uh, the text hub contractors asked us, do you want to use, uh, do you want the user to share their phone numbers? I remember, you know, feeling like, uh, no. Do you want uh, access to their, you know, camera folders? Is that, I said, no. Do you want to track? I was like, no. Why is that even a thing? And why is that so easy that just anyone can make that happen? And by anyone, I say anyone. I mean, our level was fairly rudimentary in 2019. We were just beginners. And those were some of the choices in our hands, like phone numbers, city, location, you name it. And so these choices were appalling and they warranted some kind of like studying and uh, understanding and uh, basically going back to the drawing board to do uh, for both Arif and me. And we did just that. We informed ourselves. I dived into a lot of like literature to realize, no, this is not okay. And um, we decided that, okay, this is in itself, the framework in itself is quite faulty because why should these choices be laid out in the first place? But we took the hard call of um, having a username and password. What I didn't know at that stage was this this sort of like login step would become a kind of hindrance uh, for us to get more users from the community who are interested in trying out the app because they would think that, you know, their data is being collected. So then we started to put a whole lot of, you know, discourse out that we don't take your data, we don't sell your data, no one has access to your data. And so that is the word out there. And we started to find out ways how to, you know, push our privacy policy more out there. So we started, you know, putting Instagram posts and things like that. But more on that later. I think another thing that I would want to uh, talk about here is the quick login access or through Facebook or through Google. That's such an easy step, right? Like you want someone to have a username and password and you just with a button, you can have a Google login or a Facebook login. I still am trying to learn what happens when someone does a Google login or a Facebook login. And from what I know and from what I have seen in the back end, I would not want anyone, even at the cost of losing their users or the number of users who might find it extremely tedious to have a username, password, capture. But I wouldn't want anyone to use a quick login. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, thank you. You raised such important questions around privacy and data and where people's really sensitive personal data is actually going. I was also wondering a bit more about Mumkin. How did you embed people's real life experiences into the app and into the design of the app? We obviously did not literally lift people's experiences and feed it into the app. But a decade long work on a particular subject definitely prepares you well enough to, uh, you know, know that no two people will experience the practice of female gentle cutting in the same way. And um, what also uh, I think I would say is in a way unique to Mumkin is that we allowed as many responses as possible 
on the practice itself. So, for example, if a survivor feels that she was she underwent the cut, but it did not have any impact on her, that option is also there for the users to choose from. Of course, we want to make a very strong case that the practice is a form of gender-based violence, but we also want to represent as many subjective voices on the subject as possible because ultimately it, it's a human experience. What actually fed into it was different forms of uh, information gathered uh, in different forms, actually anecdotal evidence, stories, audio, data, research, so many conversations with people for us to know how exactly did the practice impact impacts someone, like impacts a survivor, impacts someone who's the husband of a survivor, impacts someone who is probably a family member, did not even know that this happened to their daughter. We've been through those. And also it prepared us to create floor plan, right? Like who, it's an AI-driven app and we want there to be a conversation. So who are we having this conversation with? In our, uh, you know, understanding of the subject, we realize that most people want to take this uh, conversation back to, you know, to their mothers. They want to initiate this conversation with their mothers if they have any kind of unresolved issues where their mom got it done on them and didn't, didn't think it was a big deal. And that's also kind of heartbreaking, right? Like, how do you tell your mom that you feel violated by her? And so we have so, so many cases like that. And also with an intimate partner, say your husband, uh, with whom you might not have the words to initiate the conversation with. Sometimes things in the world of technology are complicated and need careful explaining. Sometimes they just need a little hard truth. I don't think anyone is going to buy a banana with crypto at any point in the foreseeable future. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, the host of Slate's What Next TBD, your clear-eyed guide to technology, power, and the future, Friday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. You've brought up this really crucial point of allowing for a variety of experiences in this context, and I think that this is an expression of how brave and wise this app is. And that idea of not dominating an app with an overarching message is really important in the feminist context and something that we thought a little bit about when, for the project I worked for before, this um, European Commission project on the production of cultures of gender equality, we created a feminist app, in inverted commas, uh, because it's incredibly difficult to appeal to all kinds of feminisms. So what we wanted to do was generate lots of different quotes that expressed how varied feminism is. So I wanted to know, before we talk to you about how feminism factors into your app, can you tell me what feminism means to you as a self-identified South Asian feminist? My heart just dropped. (laughs) I've lived, I don't know, I would say I've lived feminism all my life. Uh, For me, it's been, uh, it's really not an exaggeration to say that um, I was born angry. Uh, <laughs> I, I think um, it started with a really, really serious fight with my mother when she called me impure at the age of 11 when I got my first period. I was an 11-year-old kid, a very recalcitrant kid who wanted to play Holi, the Indian Festival of Colors. 
And so I was just, you know, wanted, I just wanted to be dunked in a well by the boys. And my mom is like, no, you're bleeding. You can't now. You have to, you're impure now. And, you know, and, and I, all I remember is I fought with her. I really, really fought with her that how dare she use the word impure. And then I realized very quickly that this is an attitude. She really does think that a girl is impure when she is menstruating. And that kind of defined my other inquiries. Of course, I didn't call it that back then. I mean, that kind of defined um, everything else I did. I wrote a play and, um, well, what does feminism mean to me? Feminism is just my way of life. To me personally, feminism is also the only way I know how to live. Well, yeah, that's the only way I know how to live. And I do, uh, however cliche it may sound, and... uh, the more I see, the less I know on this also is if it is not intersectional, it's not feminism. Yeah, exactly. That's the premise of Carrie and I's work. We we try to retain that intersectional focus in everything we do. We had a, a bit of a chuckle when you said that you were born angry. I think that was something that lots of us can um, understand. I think it's being born aware. And my mom, still a child of the 50s, writes C for curse in her diary when she gets her period, which I always find really shocking. But of course, that's such a normal thing for women of that period. So how do feminist ideas shape how you conceived of and designed Mumkin? And to flip that question slightly, what do you think that a study of apps like Mumkin can do for feminism? If you don't mind, I'm going to take that as two different questions. And yeah, I hope I don't lose my train of thought there. How did my feminism, our brand of feminism, define Mumkin? Um, Well, to start off, we realized nothing about technology is feminist or very little about technology is feminist. We realized how um, the first somebody was pitching some ideas to us and in the very, in a very like, you know, coding male space. And they brought a presentation to me which said, hey, Jane Doe, log in. And I kind of flip. I'm like, Jane Doe, sorry. Jane Doe is, of course, you know, that obscure name, persona that people talk. uh, I associate with Netflix documentaries on crime when a girl goes missing or something happens to her. And I was like, I don't want any of our users to be addressed as Jane Doe. Not now, not never. And that was like my day one (laughs) into um, (laughs) creating Mumkin. So I think it starts with the language. There isn't enough feminist representation in technology. And I'm trying to think of, uh, this was one personal anecdote, yes. But how else can I talk about it? Just last week, um, we were uploading a post on Facebook from our Mumkin page. And we realized that there's a category that Facebook now has on tags. Uh, If you have a social project, tag your project. So there was well-being there was health there was mental health there was water there was sanitation there was just about everything except for gender equality i mean in facebook as a tag how did zuckerberg and his team miss it after you know so much of discourse on you know criticism against facebook so at a very systemic level we strongly feel that technology is really really written from a male perspective. We wanted to change that. We wanted to be just these um, small minor changes, right? This morning I was designing a form 
form for mumkin and i realized that i'm not going to give option a as a man i'm going to give option b as a man the option 1 would be a woman why not just those very very basic you know laying out of option a and b they tell you something about what is the default setting what is the option 1 you know and let's flip that let's do something else option b woman and funnily i was making this form for a bunch of hackers and i knew that they'd be like oh where is my you know like i was like you got it's option 2 deal with it uh you're going to have to yeah deal with it so yeah structurally um user interface wise the way user interfaces are written at every step of the way we had this acute feeling that it's not written from a female perspective and we wanted to change that hopefully we represented that somewhat into our design there's a long road ahead uh, every day we learn something new and we want to make that go back and make that change in mumkin what it is now and uh, elena what was the second question so we're also thinking about how we can develop feminism what we can do for feminism through the study or the creation of these amazing apps i think the best way mumkin could contribute to feminism is to really really challenge that an app doesn't need to be a period tracker or a pregnancy tra- uh, tracker it could be or a shopping oh god or a shopping website uh, you know app and those are not the kind of apps women want women might want something else altogether like i don't want another period app tracking app i don't want another pregnancy tracking app i just wrote that somewhere too and i think that is a one way uh, that is the first way i would say studying of apps like mumkin could you know expand feminism priya thank you so much this has been absolutely phenomenal and it's really such a privilege on our part to get to listen to you talk about all the amazing design choices you made the a hugely important political project behind the app and i so appreciate all the thought and the care that you've put into this whole process from the multiplicity of stories that you aim to share and honor in your app through to the design choices that you've made around the visualization of the app and making sure that this isn't something that entrenches or reproduces the trauma of survivors. So we both just want to say thank you so much. It's really been such a pleasure. Likewise, thank you for having me. It's it's really special to talk about it here. This episode was made possible thanks to our generous funder, Christina Gold. It was written and produced by Dr. Elena Drage and Dr. Kerry Macrath. and edited by Laura Zamulyanita.